Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. I am Neil Rapley, and uh, here in studio with me is Jasmine Rapley and Stephen Smoot. After time, when we would typically read New Testament passages dealing with the Passion or dealing with uh, the Savior's life, most people aren't going to necessarily listen to or read all of the Passion narratives in the New Testament. Rather, they are going to be um, kind of, you know, picking and choosing, cherry-picking different scriptures. But Luke 2 is short and sweet, and so it's pretty easy to be able to uh, accomplish on a given Christmas cycle. So Luke 2 is really exciting. One thing I'll just mention to your point, Jasmine, that Latter-day Saints, um, like other Christians, tend to, as you say, sort of cherry-pick different scriptures, especially during Easter time, right? Uh, One thing I also notice, and maybe we can address today, Latter-day Saints, like other Christians, have a tendency to collapse Matthew and Luke together into a singular nativity narrative where you have when, – when the story is told or retold, you have both shepherds and wise men showing up, right? Um, and you have a decree from Herod trying to find the baby and also you have a decree from Augustus uh, and the governor Quirinius. Uh, they just all get kind of collapsed and harmonized. Uh, I understand why. It's, it's a natural thing that people want to do. Um, but I think it's worth saying something about taking time to disentangle Matthew and Luke and see what unique elements they have, like to your point, right? Matthew has shepherds and Luke ha- – or sorry, uh, Matthew has wise men and Luke has shepherds. Even I just got them confused right here. That's how, that's how natural it is to it. So um, as with any strategy of reading the Gospels, there's something I think to taking them separately on their own and appreciating them that way before we then harmonize them and try to create a more organic whole. Uh, You can do this with other incidents in the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels, right? Uh, The Passion is one of them and the Crucifixion. Um, Take your pick, right? When you have the Synoptic Gospels uh, plus John, you can approach them either by harmonizing or by looking at them in a distinguished way. My preferred methodology is to first look at them one by one to see what individually they contribute and then to take the next step to try to harmonize them uh, together. Uh, Not to say that it's wrong to harmonize them at first, just that that might be a a tip or a strategy for listeners um, and for Latter-day Saint readers of the New Testament to consider it in in that vein. And it's worth noting that pretty much none of the... New Testament infancy narratives are able to be reconciled and harmonized very easily. They all do have conflicting details. Right. And so it's worth kind of going through and trying to see what each account says to kind of say, okay, how can these work together? Do they work together mm-hmm. or do they need to be, you know, maybe just seen on their own? So with that in mind, let's just go ahead and dive into Luke chapter 2. We only have 30 minutes of our compound <laughs> today, so I'm sure we'll be able to fill the time quite swimmingly. Luke 2 starts off with kind of giving us a historical setting, date, time. It came to pass in those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And then the next verse has this kind of aside to say, and this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Now, this makes pretty much zero... Even those first two verses have conflicting details within them. Yeah. Uh, because... 
Caesar Augustus was ruling Rome at the time, but from what I understand, his jurisdiction over Judea at that time was still, I mean, Cyrenius wasn't necessarily the governor at the time we think maybe Jesus was born. And this is the big question. Mm-hmm. When was right. Jesus actually born? Cyrenius became governor of Syria. Well, he we know that there was a large census taken by Quirinus, also called Cyrenius, depending on what you're reading, in like 6 AD. Right. Um, yeah. You know, traditionally people say, oh, Christ was born in 81, because that's what our calendar is. But this is saying that big census was taken in 6 AD, and then... The Matthew accounts that we're going to talk about later talk about how Herod, um, this happened during the rule of Herod the Great, and he died in 4 BC. And so if we take into account that Herod the Great has to be alive when Jesus was born, then Jesus had to have been born before 4 BC. So we've got these kind of mm-hmm. two odds, these two details kind of conflicting. With yeah, the other. census of Quirinius is a big, big I don't well. I guess if we want to say problem for the historicity of the Lucan nativity, one that Christian scholars of the New Testament have long sort of grappled and argued with. And uh, t- to your point, Jasmine, you're exactly right. Uh, we do know of a census that Quirinius does in like yeah, eighty four or eighty six or whatever. Um, but the the big question is, can we have a census by Quirinius uh, around the time of Herod the Great? Um, if there was a, such a census as Luke records, assuming they're at the same time, then we have no other record of it in other sources. This Luke would be our only attestation for it. That, to me, I think is maybe the best argument you can make from a faithful Christian perspective. If you want to harmonize the accounts, you can say hey, it's super common in antiquity for a one-off event to be recorded in just a single source, right? Uh, same thing happens like with Josephus, or it happens with Pliny, or it happens with later Eusebius, the Christian uh, historian, right? You sometimes get these solitary attestations of this one thing by a singular author in antiquity. So maybe that's – we just have to say, look, this is our only uh, – there, there are multiple censuses that Corinius did, and Luke happens to mention the one that came before the big one that he did later, right? So it, it gets kind of messy um, to your point of right off the bat we have some issues with the chronology and what we do with it. Yeah, and from what I understand, there are multiple censuses, and we're not even exactly sure what this entails. Like, what kind of census is this? What kind of taxation is it? When we see the nativity portrayed on screen or in a movie, we get this sense that the big bad emperor of Rome is making everyone go to their ancestral homeland so that they can be um, taxed and sense or like you know accounted for and so everyone is traveling to all of these different places um but we don't necessarily really know what this entails i mean um we don't necessarily have on record like no censuses that we're aware of require you to go to your ancestral homeland and so what this means is kind of up for debate too there may be uh and it's a question there may be attestation of this sort of thing happening in roman egypt um, so some have pointed to it, but they would come a little bit later, right? I think they're like first or second century AD. Um, there's an argument. There's, there may be indication that, uh, in Roman Egypt, when you were registered to be taxed, you would have to go back to whatever your ancestral village may have been. Um, but whether, so, I mean, Greek tax papyri aren't like especially enthralling to a lot of people and so specialists debate whether that's what this papyrus is actually saying i forget offhand what it is i've I've read it in some of the literature so yeah like there's uh you know bits and pieces what is happening here do we have attestation elsewhere again to this point of 
Maybe Luke is our only attestation of it. Maybe it was happening in Roman Egypt, but maybe not in Roman Judea. So, yeah, it becomes problematic. And I remember reading a couple other possibilities that maybe instead of everyone having to go to their ancestral homeland, it's a census where you're being taxed based on the property that you own. And maybe Joseph owned some property in Bethlehem. And so that's why he was there. Or vice versa, maybe Mary did, though that's less likely. On the other hand, I've heard others propose that maybe... Joseph actually lived in Bethlehem while Mary maybe was from Nazareth. And because their betrothal would have been from an arranged marriage, from being a relation or something, it it was kind of a long distance relationship, if you will. And so Joseph goes to get Mary and brings her to essentially um, his homeland, though. I don't know which possibility is the most compelling. Somewhere in the middle, probably. (laughs) Uh, In any case, maybe we could uh, move along. From this enthralling discussion of uh, ancient census methods, um, what I actually think is really interesting uh, in Luke 2, I mean, unless, does anybody, do do we just want to start going into individual insights? I mean, I don't don't have like anything chronologically flowing through, but uh, you know, both Luke 2 and Matthew 2, I feel like are one of the kind of key themes here seems to be like witnesses to the birth of the Messiah, the arrival of the Messiah um, from the various stations of life, right? Luke 2 really kind of focuses on kind of lowly uh, people who are on the um, uh, people who are on the margins of society, right? These shepherds who, you know, are kind of a lower class in, in ancient Israel or ancient Judea, I should say. Um, they're out on the fringes. They're out in the fields. Um, it's not really a uh, a high occupation. Although, of course, we know in ancient Israel, shepherds was a, a common metaphor for royalty and kingship. So there is symbolism there that's associated with them. Uh, but nonetheless, they're they're kind of from the fringes. And then later in the chapter, we get um, uh, we get Simeon, who. Um, at the temple, and we also get Anna at the temple, this kind of uh, elderly um, kind of people, uh, uh, an, old, an older man, and uh, I'm trying to remember, is Simeon blind? Why Why does? Why is that in my head? Sorry. I don't know where that came from. Are you thinking of the fact that Zacharias goes mute? That might be it. Yeah. But, um, but you have Simeon who's kind of like he was promised, he was given a promise that he would see the Messiah before he died, and he sees he sees the child, um, and, uh, and he kind of makes some prophecy. And then Anna, who is this widow, um, also sees him. So you've got all these witnesses to the birth of the Messiah, and they're kind of on the fringes of society. And then Matthew, in Matthew 2, he gives us wise men. He gives us magi, kings, right? Uh, and so you have, like, this spectrum of this, uh, on, on you know, uh, of fr- from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high, paying homage to the newborn Messiah. And this is a prevalent theme throughout the Gospel of Luke. Luke tends to emphasize a lot of those who are more marginalized, more women stories get featured in the Gospel of Luke, and those who are on the outskirts of society. Uh, But in this chapter, Luke almost kind of sets up a foil between those that are high and mighty and what Jesus Christ, the humble circumstances he gets born into. 
I mean, the first verse talks about Caesar Augustus kind of situating us in this imperial Roman world where the greatest, highest person in existence would have been Caesar Augustus. And that's kind of contrasted with Jesus Christ, who was a baby born in a manger uh, with just humble swaddling bands. And the angel, when the angel visits the shepherds, he announces that he will be born in the city of David. Um, oh, in born this day in the city of David is a savior, which is Christ the Lord. And, you know, savior is something pretty familiar to Christians as like this um, soteriological, this atoning sort of thing that, you know, Jesus Christ saves us from our sins. But it also was a political term back in the first century CE. I mean, there's Caesar Augustus himself. The Roman emperors were sometimes heralded as Soters as saviors in Greek, those who like liberated cities and um, those who liberated civilizations by their benevolent rule. And so this is kind of a little bit of a contrast, a foil between Caesar Augustus, the greatest of the great, the Soter of the Roman world compared to Jesus Christ, who's the ultimate savior, who's the real savior, and he is born in lowly and humble circumstances. But uh, the... Shepherds uh, abiding in their flocks by night, as it were. I mean, because they're out in the fields, a lot of people think that this probably means it was Jesus was born probably closer in the springtime than rather in the Israel winter, Palestinian winter. Um, But what time exactly Jesus was born? We don't really know. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of debate on the exact timing of uh, the Savior's birth. And, you know, some people have made a case for winter. We know a few years back uh, in BYU studies, Jeff Chadwick argued that it was probably around December. Uh, you know, he argued that the the temperate climate of Palestine is such that you really could be grazing shepherds in the field just about any time of year. So uh, I don't know. I've never been there myself. So uh, it gets cold in the winter. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. But like, not like Utah cold, right? But it, it does get right. chilly. Um, but yeah, you can you can stay bundled up, right? And uh, you got to watch your flock as long as they're alive, whether it's winter right. or spring. Doesn't, right? Doesn't you, really matter. You don't have off season for you know watching the flock, <laughs> as it were. Maybe we could take just a second to address the the popular belief amongst Latter Day Saints that Jesus must have been born on April sixth, right? That's uh, that's a big one that you get all the time. Uh, usually, the basis for it, people will cite Doctrine and Covenants section twenty, verse one. Uh, the, the so-called Articles and Covenants of the Church of Christ, um, because it says, well, well I, I can just pull it up here real quick, but it basically says, right, uh, so this is the founding of the church, sort of the founding constitution of the church, given on April 6, 1830, this revelation, and uh, it says, the rise of the Church of Christ in these last days being 1,830 years since the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the flesh, uh, yada yada on the sixth day of the month, which is called April. Aha, people say, right? This must have been April sixth was when Jesus was born because DNC twenty verse one says so. Well, keep in mind this is a, a superscription that John John Whitmer makes in the manuscript in the Revelation manuscript book to this revelation that gets incorporated into the text of the Doctrine and Covenants as if it's part of like the quote unquote original revelation itself. John Whitmer does this all the time. It's just a nice protestant dating convention that they have right there's nothing really especially revelatory or profound or prophetic about it it's just john whitmer's fancy protestant way of saying 
1830 when this thing happened, right? The, the event of, uh, of the founding of the church. So maybe he was born on April 6th. Who's to say, right? Uh, but I would be cautious in using this as kind of like a proof text uh, for, for that case. Yeah, and I, I think it is worth noting, uh, and this is something that's talked about in the Jeff Chadwick, Chadwick article I mentioned. And in some, look, there's been a lot of articles that have actually been written about the birth of, of Jesus by various scholars, both Latter-day Saints. And obviously, if you go out into the wider world of Christian scholarship and stuff, it's been very thoroughly studied by many different people. But uh, one thing that I thought was very helpful that Jeff Chadwick did is he documented all the different opinions people have held within the Latter-day Saint tradition specifically, including other general authorities and prophets who have maintained, who, who have disagreed that Jesus was born on April 6th. That's not something that's been universally taught by all the prophets or, and, and whatnot. They've had, there have been some different opinions. So that's not something you're bound to believe doctrinally. We don't have a strong, as Stephen noted, a very compelling scriptural precedent for it. Um, and that's okay. That just means we don't know when Jesus was born, and that's okay, you know? <laughs> One other thing I will just, it just comes to mind as I'm looking over at Matthew 2, side by side with, with Luke 2. Jasmine mentioned that Luke begins with Caesar Augustus, right? Uh, emperor, Roman emperor of basically the known world, the Mediterranean world. I think it's worth pointing out that Matthew 2 starts by mentioning the days of Herod, the king of Judah, Right. And Herod is a polarizing figure, to say the least, uh, in uh, in the first century BC, right, uh, when he's king of Judea. So he's a client king of Rome. So he's like mini Caesar, basically, you can say, right? Uh, and he's going to have a polarizing effect. So even Matthew gets the sense, it's really interesting, the study and contrast of Caesar and Herod versus the Christ child. Uh, and like the, the uniting theme of both the accounts is like the... Uh, uh, the very low station of Joseph and Mary and Jesus when Jesus is born, right, uh, comparatively speaking. So I find that – and that's been touched on, of course, again and again, right, contrasting the imperial and royal majesty of of Augustus and Herod with, you know, the lowly, humble circumstances of Jesus. Uh, yeah, and and along those lines, one of the things that I think actually really kind of highlights that low station uh, in Luke's account is – you have this story with the shepherds where they're out in the fields, which started our whole discussion here about the dating of Jesus. But you have these shepherds out in their fields, and they're visited at first by a single angel um, who tells them, you know, fear not. Uh, and then he delivers this message to them. Uh, and then they're actually surrounded by a whole host of angels who um who sing glory to god and have kind of this um you know this divine choir sort of thing and we just finished reading the old testament right this is actually a familiar pattern in the ancient near east and in the old testament where uh usually um well, this is this is a somewhat familiar pattern, but there's something missing, right? You're usually when you're when you see this divine concourse of angels and they're praising the Lord, what's there in the middle of it all? The Lord on His throne. Uh, but instead of that, here you don't get the Lord on His throne, but you get the baby in the manger and the angel. Not to get well, you know. For he who hath ears to hear, let him hear, kind of thing. But the angel literally gives them a sign mm-hmm. by which they'll be able to enter into the the presence of the Lord here. But that presence of the Lord, again, it's not the glorified throne. 
it's this baby in the manger. So that it sets up this kind of subverting expectations where you're expecting the Lord to appear in all his glory, and instead you get the innocent, uh, lowly, humble child in these uh, in these circumstances in the manger. Uh, well, I think we just have a few minutes left on this section, right? Do we want to talk real quick about uh, everybody's favorite topic, the slaughter of the innocents in Matthew 2? Since uh, uh, that, that's, that's one of, again, one of the unique things that's mentioned um, in Matthew that's not mentioned in Luke. So Herod's reaction very infamously when he realizes he's been duped by the wise men, as it were, it says he orders the slaughter of all the children in Bethlehem. Uh, again, another point, kind of like with how do we work? How do we do with the chronology of the of the dating of of the birth of Jesus? What do we do with this mention uh, of the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem? Another point people have debated and discussed: uh, Is this a historical event? Is this an embellishment by the gospel writer to you know sort of raise the stakes or whatever? Um, and there's a uh, go figure debate back and forth. I actually think that what we know about Herod, it is entirely within his character to have done something like this. Um, people make a big deal. Well, you know, Josephus never mentions the slaughter of the innocents. And I think like, well, so what? Like, uh, you know, just because Josephus doesn't mention it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Uh, and to, on the contrary, what Josephus does record about Herod in the first century, it's like entirely plausible and within his character to have done something like this. Um, I think uh, the, the other thing I'll mention before I turn over the last couple minutes, the best arguments for this I've seen for the historicity of the slaughter of the innocents in the Mathean account come from Ben Witherington III and Larry Hurtado, who were two evan- very good evangelical Christian New Testament scholars. And they go on the archaeology of Bethlehem in the first century from what we can tell. And people think of Bethlehem as like, you know, uh, some big city or whatever. It's kind of like just a suburb of Jerusalem in the first century. And so, and like demographically, we can kind of extrapolate how many people are actually living in Bethlehem at this time. And then from that, how many kids are there going to be? And, and it's not going to be a lot. Yeah. And how many toddlers have padaioi in Greek, right? So like uh, little kids, infants, right? So, um, we're talking maybe upper bound of like 60 kids or something. I think yeah. that's when they put it at. Like, we're not talking about like a wholesale tens of thousands of kids or whatever. We might have been talking about just a few families, or you know what I mean? So just a few, yeah. And they're a bunch of peasants anyway, so who cares? Who's going to record this? That's kind of the argument, right? So I find that interesting uh, on the historical side of things. Obviously, on the, the narrative side of things, clearly we're amping up the stakes. And we got to get Jesus to Egypt, right? So he and his family. So this is a good narrative bridge to, uh, to get them to going into Egypt. Yeah, and I think that um – <laughs> to your point, uh, you know, Josephus records several things about Herod, like you said, that tells us this is well within his character. And, like, it would be – just as it would be absurd to think that the Gospels record everything that ever happened in Jesus's life, like, it'd be absurd to think that Josephus recorded every horrible thing that Herod ever did, right? Like, this guy was a scumbag. He did terrible things. Uh, and – we it's certain we we know he must have done way he must have done other things besides just what Josephus decided was worthy of of recording and to Stephen's point uh, Bethlehem was you know kind of a small town uh i don't want to say that like the slaughter of 60 toddlers isn't a horrific act because it absolutely is but when you're when you're Josephus in Rome about a century later or however long it's been uh that probably doesn't register as as big and like you said especially they're probably peasants and things like that that's just not going to register on on your 
your map of yeah. of the last hundred years or so. Jo- Josephus's Roman audience are going to care about Herod killing off like his you know stepsons or his wife or, or his concubine, like all the family intrigue. They're not going to care about killing a bunch of Judean peasants. That's right. not going to. So what you know? But oh, the family and political intrigue—that's what his Roman audience is going to care about. And what I really love about Matthew 2 is just the emphasis on the elite and the royalty of Jesus, whereas we talked about Luke 2 is all about the humble circumstances and the savior aspect of Jesus. Matthew 2 is really emphasizing that Jesus Christ is the true king of the Jews. Verse 1 like starts off that uh, – or verse 2, the that Herod uh, – Wiseman came from the east of Jerusalem and approached Herod and – they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And that's kind of what sets up the drama is that Herod feels this competition with this alternative king. And previously in the prior chapter, Matthew 1 just sets out the genealogy of Jesus to set him out as like this descendant of David. And so we get both from all these different accounts. We see Jesus as the humble savior and we see Jesus as the royal king, but still born to humble circumstances, but given homage by these wise men, these rich elites who bring him gold, frankincense, and myrrh, these, you know, symbolic gifts of wealth, prestige, uh, even, you know, priesthood, temple significance. Uh, absolutely. And uh, not to keep harping on the, uh, the slaughter of innocence, but Jasmine, what Jasmine said did just remind me, like, not only is it in line with Herod's behavior generally, but it's also pretty in line with what we know of kings in the ancient Near East and the ancient world more generally. Like, you hear about, like, a, a threat to your reign, either – I mean, sometimes it's your own kids, right? And you're like, well, this person threatens my reign. I'm just going to kill him or I'm going to – and, and I'm going to kill as many people as I have to to make sure they're dead. Like this is – I mean, this goes – this is such a tried and true thing of, of the ancient world that like it's embedded into Greek mythology and stuff like that. I mean, in general, being on the throne in antiquity bred a certain amount of paranoia at yeah. keeping that throne. <laughs> and so and so when when – you know, you imagine your Herod and these three kings from another land come in and tell you someone else was born who's destined to become king of the Jews. Like, that would 100% kick in the, the, the kind of, the kind of uh, protect the, your throne sort of mentality that we see from kings of the ancient Near East. But in any case, uh, we do need to get moving on to our next segment here. Um, uh, those are both are great chapters. There's so much, so much that could be said about them. 